Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, a podcast channel with New Books Network. I'm Dominik Finkelde, Professor of Philosophy at the Munich School of Philosophy in Germany, and with me together is Simon Feitz, PhD student and expert in critical theory. Today's interview is with Christoph Menke. He is Professor of Philosophy at the Goethe University in Frankfurt, Germany, and considered the most important representative of the third generation of the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory. This school was founded, as many of you know, by Adorno and Horkheimer, the so-called first generation, and became famous through philosophers like Jürgen Habermas and Axel Honneth, among others, the so-called second generation. In this conversation, we will focus on Christoph Menke's recent book, Critique of Rights. It has been published recently by uh, Polity Press and provoked, at least in Germany, some fierce debates. In them, Menke has been repeatedly accused of being a radical critic of modern liberal democracies and of somehow flirting too much with Marxism. Menke presents in his book a critical reflection on especially what he calls subjective rights. These are granted to citizens of the so-called Western world by law. They guarantee our liberty and individuality as one of the most sacred values that have to be protected by law. To have a right means to have a justified and binding claim. Now, Menke exposes in his book, which is both a genealogy and an ontology of law, that these subjective rights which mark the birth of bourgeois society, have ambivalent properties. They are not only expressions of individuality and freedom everybody of us enjoys today as the most important achievement that enlightenment has probably transferred to us. They also create what Karl Marx called, and I quote, the entitlement of the egoistic human being set apart from his fellow human beings and from the community, end of quote. So when equal rights are declared by modern revolutions, society becomes the realm of private individuals that pursue their interests. Private interests become the new natural basis for politics, and Menke calls this the naturalization of the social. In his book, he analyzes this paradoxical intertwinement of modern freedom and egoism And he does so in an analysis of the form of law, or more specifically, of the form of subjective rights. As such, he opens up a new meta-theoretical way of understanding rights that, contrary to what one might think, do not empower the citizens of a political community, but on the contrary, disempower them. So let's dive into this fascinating book and start uh, with this interview. Hello, Christoph Menke, and welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. 
Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Also, welcome from me. My name is Simon Feetz, and together with Dominic, I am very excited to have the opportunity to talk about your recent book. Dominic and I prepared for the interview a list of questions, but we don't have to stick to the list dogmatically. We may skip sometimes an, a question and dig a little deeper into another one. But before we get to the book itself, please tell us a bit about yourself, your philosophical interests, and how you came to write the book. Yeah, uh, thank you for, for the list of questions. And thank you, Dominic uh, Finkelde, for, for the very helpful introduction. Um, uh, maybe I should say something about how I see myself in the tradition of the Frankfurt School in trying to answer this question. The tradition of the Frankfurt School you already mentioned. Um, in my view, I mean, what all the different generations in which the history of the Frankfurt School is uh, normally divided share is a certain interest in what maybe in a contemporary language we would call um, normative orders. I mean, systems and orders of normativity. Um, I think that is already the case in the in the first generation, and that's the, one of the reasons why the first generation of the Frankfurt School, uh, most notably Adorno, but also Horkheimer, were criticized by more uh, orthodox Marxists as um, deviating heavily from from the tradition of Marxism, because they were interested in, let's say, the what they called the uh, specific signature and the specific structure of rationality or reason, which is what today would maybe be called normativity, or in the case of Adorno, an interest in what the order of a concept is, which is also a normative uh, form. So I think there's this strong interest in a, in a critique of normativity, in the critique of normative order. Um, And uh, this has then been uh, further developed in a, a very different way in the tradition of Habermas. And my interest is in, in a certain sense in returning to, to the first generation um, of the Frankfurt School uh, with interest in exploring uh, the relation between the contemporary structure of normative orders and domination. So uh, I think that is uh, domination and violence, we could say. I mean, I think this is the interest in, in Adorno and Horkheimer to find out in what way uh, the specific structure of normativity, the specific structure in my case of law, but we could also say of reason and rationality in general, is not only contributes but is constitutive uh, for the establishment and the preservation of uh, uh, social forms of domination. So that's basically my interest. And that means um, to take, uh, and I think we will come back to this complicated methodological question, to take the structures of normativity seriously as, as I just said, constitutive for social domination, so not just pertaining to the field of ideology. Yeah, maybe, so that's uh, saying something about my background. So in a certain sense, I want, I'm conservative. I want to return to a certain interest in this first generation of uh, the Frankfurt School, which uh, 
has maybe, in my view, been forgotten or put aside by the following generation, not most notably in the case of Habermas, but also to a certain degree in the case of Axel Honneth, who um, I think are not mainly interested in the in the relation in the connection between uh, normativity and domination, but rather take uh, normative orders in a certain sense as autonomous. Uh, um, and rather as the other of domination. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Um, I think, in my view, it's it's quite questionable if this move back to the first generation, Adorno-Horkheimer, is really a, con a, a conservative move. But thank you very much. Um, so your book is called Critique of Riots. Uh, and in the book, as the title says, You unfold a critique of legal structures of our modern liberal bourgeois societies. Why is this critique necessary? Is the legal system of our so-called Western societies not the best achievement what enlightenment has brought us? Very good question. Um, I think which has which brings us directly to um, to the central. Um, I mean point of attack, one could say, of um, of uh, the concept of, of rights. So I would say, um, yes, it is the best achievement and at the same time the worst. Um, and this already, I mean, says something maybe only negatively, but just to start with this negative point about how I understand critique in the title of the book. So I don't understand critique and I don't think that this is the important task of critique as uh, being about a normative decision pro or con. So as as if critique meant that we have to begin with a decision whether we are in favor or against uh, rights. I think this is not the decisive question. I think the question whether, uh, or the disnormative question one could say, whether we are uh, against or in favor of rights can, comes only back much later. It's a question of Uh, a political strategy, which is important, a political and juridical strategy of how to deal with the system of rights, since this is the uh, normative system which is in power today. But um, uh, at the beginning, when we start our critical investigation, it is not about understanding whether rights are good or bad, but what we have to understand is rather in what way uh, in uh, the concept of rights and in the practice of rights, um, what is good, one could say, what is liberation, what is, uh, what is, what, what is freedom um, uh, in, in the concept of rights and what is domination is internally entwined. So freedom or liberation and domination are not two sides of the rights which can be separated in an act of critical distinction and then uh, played out one against the, each other, but it's precisely uh, through its liberatory and, fr uh, and liberal aspect that rights promote and actively um, produce domination. So this is what I understand by critique, not to distinguish between liberation and domination, but right, quite to the contrary, to see the dialectical unity or identity, which means at the same time the contradiction, the identity and the contradiction at the same time between liberation and domination in the very concept of rights. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, that makes sense. That's really insightful. Uh, you unfold in your critique of rights uh, in the context of different historical stages, especially in Europe and in the development of law. And I, I found this very insightful also from a pedagogical uh, standpoint that we understand something then through these historical stages. They begin in antiquity, then they go through modern times and reach the present. And you uh, mark these stages with city names like Ath Athens, Rome, London. Could you explain what happens in these stages ontologically and normatively with regard to the modern concepts of right, law and political community? Yeah, uh, this is a complicated part uh, of the book. I mean, complicated in the sense that Uh, there is, of course, a certain kind of irony to uh, to this usage of names. I don't take it entirely seriously. I don't claim that in essence in Rome and London, I mean London, I mean London of the 17th and 18th century, um, uh, these, uh, what I describe was actually literally what what has happened. It's rather referring to to three canonical authors in the history of rights. So it's Aristotle and Cicero and Hobbes. And therefore, I have linked them with, with these city names. Um, the main idea behind telling this story is, is a twofold one. I mean, um, my approach has a little bit to do with, uh, in that sense, with the Nietzschean perspective when he says um, that... Uh, There is a certain, there can be a certain kind of st surface stability of a form. So we talk of rights uh, already since we have a, we have societies in which there is exchange. So in a certain sense, we could say from the beginning of at least uh, civilized civilized societies, from the beginning on, there is exchange, economic exchange, and where there is economic exchange, there is a certain basic understanding of of, of a right. Yeah, because if you give me something in an act of exchange that constitutes a right on my uh, on your side, that I give you something in return. So exchange is in itself normatively structured. It does, it's not just the empirical fact that you give me something, I give you something, but we constitute um, a, a semi-contractual relation in, in, in exchange. So the existence of rights, if that you have a right against me to something, That is something uh, which is uh, as old as there is economic exchange. But there is a so there's a certain kind. What of, could say on this on the surface a seeming in um, continuity of form, stability of form. But at the same time, I want to indicate the the, the very fundamental and the very basic um, uh, transformation that takes place here. And in a sense, what I what I use here is um, Uh, a Hegelian picture when he talks in his early uh, in his early writings about a tragedy in ethical life. Uh, so what he calls Sittlichkeit, ethical life, um, uh, is dissolved and uh, uh, is dissolved or lost, as he also says, in in modernity. And that means the concept of rights becomes independent uh, uh, from. Uh, the idea of goodness or uh, or virtue or as he says sittlichkeit ethical life so in in essence uh, i mean should i say something briefly about this the differences or yeah, should, uh, not, yeah. 
Why not? I mean, we, we have time. Why not? Of course, it's, it's, it's interesting. Okay. So um, in this in this schematic view, I, I uh, construction I, I I try to put up here. One could say that in um, in the Athenian in the Aristotelian uh, idea, um, a right is in its content and in its foundation ethical. So I only can have a right to something which is good, yeah, good in itself. And the reason why I have this right is, in a certain sense, my own goodness, my, my virtuousness, so my virtue. So in that sense, I only have a right towards something which, according to the ethical standards we share in a community, can be called good. And this shared conception of goodness is, as, as De Villiers says, so the, the, the French uh, historian of rights, this partition of goodness, the good partition, the good uh, um, distribution uh, that, that we are, have agreed on uh, in our community is the basis for my individual rights. So individual rights are totally derivative um, on the uh, shared idea of goodness. Now, if, if we if we jump and, and skip for a moment the Roman interplay in this history, um, this is entirely different in the modern understanding of rights, which, for, in my view, is first articulated in the most clear way in, in Hobbes. Of course, I, as you know, I mean, there's a prehistory of this Hobbesian understanding, which sometimes is... Um, uh, is uh, is uh, traced back to to Ockham's uh, understanding of of rights, which is a very interesting uh, uh, sto um, version of this story or of this um, of this understanding of modern rights. But if you take the standard account in Hobbes, uh, rights are dissolved from the idea of goodness. So there, I have a right not to something which is good in itself. But I have a right towards something which is natural, which is a natural truth about me, namely that I'm a being that is not interested in goodness, in virtue, and in, in a shared understanding of community, but rather in my self-preservation, which is something natural uh, about me, natural fact about me, according to my own arbitrary decision, which is also a naturalized understanding of freedom. Yeah? So I mean, what I try to tell is the whole story of the replacement of the connection between rights and goodness or sittlichkeit with um, a connection between rights and a certain modern, specific modern understanding of the natural. Maybe I should stop here or should well, I continue? Um, could you still maybe underline once again what, what, what the, um, Why you focus so much on subjective rights in this genealogy? What is what is modernity? What is the 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 critical impact of subjective rights from this jump from antique Sittlichkeit to to modern equality? Yeah, that's a very important point. So, what is and what what do we mean by subjective here? Right? I mean, what what is what is the point of talking of subjective rights? In in my view, it means. Uh, This concept of the subject which is used here um, in uh, in uh, in the term subjective right is not the subject, let's say, in the demanding Kantian sense. Yeah? So where uh, where the subject is the autonomous being, so where subjectivity and reason um, are mutually uh, def 
definitive or mutually determining concepts, but rather the subject which is meant here is, as I said before, the subject as it is, or let it, I don't know, maybe the individual would be better to say, the individual as it is naturally given. And uh, naturally given means that we, by nature, have certain basic interests. I mean, the term interest, as you know, is entirely modern. It only develops uh, in the context of the establishment of this naturalistic understanding of subjectivity in the 17th and 18th century. So interests are uh, orientations or basic, uh, basic strivings, one could say, which are defined as naturally given um, and refer to the natural existence of of the individual. So I therefore the basic interest I have, according to Hobbes, is the interest in self-preservation. And the other, as I said before, naturalistic term in the characterization of what subjective means here is that um, uh, is a certain idea of freedom, which is also um, uh, specifically modern, namely the idea of freedom as arbitrary choice. Yeah? So it's not that freedom is about uh, uh, developing uh, or making decisions about my understanding of what is good, but rather arbitrary choice means uh, freedom as the capacity to make decisions precisely independently of the idea of goodness. Yeah, and these two elements, I mean, so the, 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 my interests, which are naturally given, and my capacity of choice, arbitrary choice, that means choice independently of, of the question of rationality and goodness, um, these together define the modern understanding of subject to which the term subjective rights refers. Okay. Yeah, that's 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 insightful. Uh, you describe the modern civil law as defined by being self-reflexive uh, or and self-reflexivity of the modern law uh, is a is a central topic of your book. Uh, what is the self-reflection of law about well you could say uh, is is law not always in a, always self-reflecting of its own normative standards why uh, yeah why 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 do you invent somehow this this concept of self-reflexivity of the law what is so important with regard to this yeah that's a, that's an important uh, point for the construction in a certain sense of the story of the of the book um, maybe I should say first something briefly about the the relevance, or let's say the 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 methodological relevance of this term, and then say something about what I understand by self-reflection. Yes, so I mean uh, it's important for me. Um, uh, I mean this this claim that modern law is self-reflective, which in a certain sense I take over from uh, from Niklas Luhmann, the system theoretical approach to law is um, that I want, in a sense, I want to tell two stories about the modern development, the development of, of the modern development of the concept of rights. I mean, I always want to tell two stories. I want to say it's liberation and it's domination at the same time. And therefore, I also want to say it's a story in a certain sense of, of a loss. I mean, we lose the understanding, as I tried to say before, between um, 
the legitimacy of a certain individual claim to a politically articulated conception of goodness. This is the aspect I just tried to um, to um, summarize before. But there's another aspect here, which in a sense is the con counter story one could tell about the modern development of subjective rights. And that means that modern rights are the attempt of articulate a certain kind of self-reflective um, awareness of the law of itself. So uh, I will say something about what I mean by this in a moment, but so that the outcome of this construction is uh, to be able to say, at least this is what I suggest, that we could say subjective rights are the wrong form of articulating or making uh, a good and correct and important move. So the important move I want to preserve is that law should be self-reflective. What I want to oppose is that we that this self-reflection necessarily takes on the form of subjective rights. Yes. So I want to say there's something at the basis of subjective rights which then which is good in itself, which is important in itself, but which then goes wrong, which is then put into the a wrong form uh, by being articulated uh, in the way of subjective rights. Yeah, so this is the importance of this term, of the move to, to speak about self-reflection in my account. And by self-reflection, I mean something uh, pretty simple, um, uh, which uh, then also connects uh, my view of uh, modern law with, I think, something we'll discuss maybe later about with the biopolitical uh, reflection on law in Agamben. So um, I want, I take on, as I said, this concept uh, of self-reflection, take it over from Luhmann, and he means by this something very simple. He says, they, we always have to... Um, to be aware that there are two distinctions when it comes to law. The one distinction is the internal distinction, the, the distinction with which legal systems work in themselves. They are always about distinguishing between, um, let's say, between justice and injustice, yeah? between what is just and what is unjust, or what is legal and what is uh, illegal. And that is the distinction with which law operates. And at the end of every legal Procedure. It is, this distinction has to be somehow made, and this defines everything in the context of law. Of law, that is the basic under, uh, distinction with which law operates. But there's always also a second distinction which has to be made, nam namely the distinction between what pertains to law and what falls outside of law. Yeah. Um, and this is uh, a distinction that Luhmann mainly understands by saying. Uh, with reference to to his uh, specific understanding of modern differentiation, I mean, so what what is outside of law is, for instance, economy, politics, morality, art, and so on. But I think that this that we have to take this seriously on a on a deeper level, um, and this is the point where it connects with what I find very interesting in Agamben, namely that uh, since law is made in modern societies at least the um, the normative order, this is the only normative order we share in modern societies. We don't share any uh, religious orientations anymore. We don't share moralities anymore. But what we share as the normative order that binds us, that defines us, is law. And uh, 
And so therefore, in, in at least in modernity, law is, is as being the normative orders always distinct from what is non-normative. Uh, and what is non-normative in the, in the most general sense can be understood as that which is nature. I mean, physis in a certain sense. Yeah. So the, the nomos physis distinction in, 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 uh, in, in Greek sophist philosophy, I mean, is maybe the first articulation of this. So there's always something outside the normative order, which is, pre-given to it, which is exists independently of it. And we could say um, that, uh, and that is an, 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 another very important aspect for me of telling this history from Athens to London. So, um, because in, in, the, in the ethical understanding of, uh, of law, the other of, of law is always meant to be something that is to be transformed in a in paideia, in a pedagogical process, in, in processes of ethical education, into something which is then transformed into into the ethical. So the the non-ethical is only seen in a teleological perspective as to be transformed into uh, the ethical. So my natural drives are obviously there, but these natural drives has to have to be educated. They have to be uh, given the form of ethical habit or hexes, right? So, and uh, in modernity, one could say uh, the self-reflective awareness that maybe con constitutes modernity is there is a moment of untransformability, can we say this, a, a moment that cannot be transformed into a normative order in, in the, on the natural side. The nature stays the other of normativity and can never be entirely transformed into normativity. And so one could also say what I mean by self-reflectivity is something very simple, is the awareness on, on the normative side that the normative side is just one side, which always will stand in a relation of difference, of irreducible difference uh, from the natural. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very interesting. Um, maybe I, I bring in another question here. Um, it seems to me that you are working with at least two dimensions of nature, or maybe with two notions of nature. Um, because on the one hand, nature means um, the opposite or the contrast to law. And on the other hand, nature is... Um, is what is entitled in subjective rights. And I think there is a gap between these two notions or two dimensions of nature. And I think it has something to do with your notion of self-reflexivity. And I'm wondering if, if, uh, if law is able to reflect on, uh, on both of these dimensions of, of nature or of the opposite of law, because, um, let me put it another way, do you think that, for example, law is able to reflect the deprivation of rights? Because uh, people who are outside the law um, belong, in a sense, also to what you call nature. Mm -hmm. What would you say um, con concerning this this? Uh, 
two dimensions of nature. I think you I, I would say and I say that you're right. I mean, uh, it, it's the, there's a confusion here, at least on on the terminological level, and I hope not on the conceptual one. But let's let me see if I can uh, explain it, and then you let me know whether it's con it's convincing or not. Um, at least let's say the strategy I, I try to um, lay lay out. Uh, so. Where should I begin? So I, I think I have to say something first. I mean, very briefly, just to add something to what I said about self-reflection. So maybe it's already clear, but um, it wasn't to me when I talked before, so therefore I want to add it. So self-reflection means, I, I said self-reflection is about the difference between uh, the normative and the non-normative as being irreducible. That is the first step. But what is important is that, uh, in certain sense, who is the subject of this awareness? Where is the, takes this awareness place? I mean, it's not just, uh, we only speak of self-reflection if it's not just um, an external observer, let's say the philosopher, that who observes this distinction. Yeah, so this is... Uh, this is, for instance, something which takes place. Therefore, this Roman Roman interplay is for me so important. For the first time, I think in 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 the Roman conception of of law, there you see Cicero as observing the irreducibility of this distinction. But this distinction in itself does not yet play any role in the self understanding, in the formation of the legal order. But I want to say that what in modernity takes place is that law itself becomes internally aware of its external distinction and uh, from what is non-legal, what is pre-legal, what is non-normative. Yeah? So this is what this is what I mean by self-reflection. So the difference between law and non-law, the difference between the normative and the natural becomes a constitutive moment in the constitution of the normative order itself. Yeah. So this is what but is, then, you, but, but excuse me. But then you interpret ex, ex, exactly this kind of self-reflection as as a form of violence, or where the where the where the law, even if if in its self-reflexivity, is nevertheless even more pushing something out of its limits, though it is supposed to be uh, self-reflexive. Is is this? Uh, could you underline again what? In yeah. what way the violence comes exactly to the fore in this moment of self-reflexivity of law? Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you for for raising this point, um, because it makes it makes it possible, I think, to um, to address your question, the question for self-reflexivity, maybe also on a level which um, makes it easier to grasp what this problem is about. So. Um, I think a way of, of answering your question is to say, to, to remember what is, um, let's say, one of the founding motivations uh, for the modern um, restructuring of, um, or the early modern restructuring of the legal system with the help of, of the concept of, of rights. I mean, um, it's an anti-violence anti move. Yeah? So I could say what the bourgeois revolutions begin with the entirely correct insight that the traditional forms of 
of legality which which praise themselves to be ethical or sittlich at the same time um, embody and incorporate a certain fundamental violence yeah, which is the violence of the legal against everything uh, that cannot be transformed into ethical goodness in itself so against everything that is merely natural i mean for instance the criminal the great criminal at least is seen in the pre-legal um, orders as embodying this extra legal nature which will never be able to be transformed entirely into into ethical habit and therefore has to be repressed in the most violent forms and um, i mean this is described as your own oh, i mean beautifully in, in 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 foucault right when he describes the the pre-modern sovereign forms of of legality or law and, and then uh, the modern um let's say reform transformation of rights starts with uh with the with the right, I think, totally convincing move to say that this violence is not acceptable, that their legal, the, the legal system has to be, has to lose its sovereignty. It has to be uh, internally, one could say, split. It has to internally um, recognize that, uh, let's say, the legitimacy in quotation marks, the, uh, the right of that which is outside of the legal order. Yeah. So, namely the non-legal. Yeah. So our natural drives, let's say, our 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 short-sightedness, our our mistakes, our failures, and so on and so on. Uh, and this is, I think, let's say, one could even say, uh, uh, see my anarchistic motivation in the bourgeois revolution of rights. Yeah. So to delimit the the grasp of the normative order, to 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 fight. The violence, uh, which is in, inscribed in the old sovereignistic understanding of of legality, and then I think so. And I entirely share this 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 proto semi anarchistic move, right, and motivation. But then I want to say, and this comes back also to the question um, Simon Fetz has raised. Then I think the uh, the bourgeois revolutions articulate. Um, uh, this this convincing that's as I said anarchistic motivation in an entirely wrong form, namely by giving uh, nature the non uh, normative, the non legal, the extra legal, which is nature in the sense of being not transformable into normativity. So where nature means just the other of normativity into something which can be positively determined. Yeah, which can be seen as something, as I say, as something given, which is untransformable for us, which is not not to be articulated, which is outside of the reach of our, let's say, ethical practices of transformation. Um, and they turn the otherness of nature into the determinateness, the pre-givenness, or yeah. I would say in a positivistic understanding of nature. Yeah, that's insightful, right. Yeah. Okay. Yes, thank you very much. Um, maybe we ca we should come to another point in your work, especially your usage of the notion biopolitics and biopolitical. You say that um, this modern self-reflexive law, concept of law, um, is built before the background of... Um, 
of a biopolitical normativity, I think. And you mentioned that this modern law conception is, is situated in this biopolitical context. And you refer, among others, um, to Giorgio Agamben um, and also to Michel Foucault. Um, the term biopolitics uh, comes originally from, from, me, uh, from Michel Foucault and often has to do with the management of health and of society, of bodies, humans, but also with um, the awareness of, again, exclusions from society, the, the radical outside, the hostility. Um, why do you go into biopolitics and, and what, is, what is the point in this biopolitical characteristic of the self-reflexive law? Yeah, um, I think that's also, again, a very good question. Um, so I think I would hesitate to say that I really go into biopolitics. What I think I, but I don't, yeah, maybe I, I don't remember everything of the book. But <laughs> so I, in my view today, at least I would say what I'm interested in is to to situate uh, biopolitics, to be able to understand um, why what Foucault describes uh, as a biopolitical um, uh, transformation um, is even possible. And uh, I, I do this in part because I want to reject or resist a certain characterization of biopolitics, which we sometimes can find um, in uh, Foucault when he connects the turn to biopolitics in his account, let's say about around 1800, with what he calls a loss of relevance of law, and I think that this is not correct. Yeah. So um, uh, I think what one rather would have to say, and I could also say this with Foucault, uh, with the Foucault of other passages, that this is not a general loss of relevance of law, but the deep transformation of law, which I tried to reconstruct, and maybe is a loss of the idea of a sovereign law, as we just discussed it before, but rather biopolitics, in my view, is rather the outcome, the effect of a certain transformation of law. So in that sense, I want, in this, what I mean, I want to situate biopolitics. I want to ask for the conditions of possibility of the transformation of politics towards let's say, a politics of security, securing uh, life. Yeah. Um, I want to ask for the conditions of possibility of this transformation from the legal side. What had to be, what, how law had to be transformed, how law had to change in order for this biopolitical politics of security to be possible at all. And at that point, I connect, I refer to much more than to Foucault, to Agamben's idea of biopolitics, because I understand uh, Agamben as being interest, precise, interested precisely in the relation we just discussed before, namely what he calls biopolitics is the relation between polis and bios, or the relation between no, the normative and nature, right? And uh, so biopolitics in Agamben, I think, operates on an ontologically deeper level, um, namely uh, as being, as I said, 
as thinking about um, how what the different regimes of dealing with uh, the irreducible difference between physics and nomos, between law and nature is. And, more, and in that perspective, which is opened up by Agam, I think in a very interesting way, um, I try to place in a certain sense the modern regime of subjective rights as being one episode in, uh, in the in the history of answering the question of how to deal with this irreducible, uh, indissolvable difference. And in my view, it's a bad episode, <laughs> as you know. That's yeah. indeed, indeed. Maybe just a, a brief follow-up. Um, for example, in Society Must Be Defended, um, a lecture uh, by, by the, the late Foucault, um, Foucault claims that biopolitics has something to do with, with making a gap between life and death. I think this is one version of biopolitics which has taken up um, Agamben very, uh, very strongly. Um, does this gap between life and death, between uh, one, one could say, uh, between life in a, in a full sense and precarious life on, on the other hand, does this have something to do with your approach or is this not the case that you are referring to in your biopolitical concept? Oh, that's a complicated one. Um, I don't know. I must say, I, I maybe I didn't think enough about it. So, um, I mean, the way in which I try to think about um, the relation, the, the way in which I try to think about the way in which uh, in the modern regime of subjective rights um, violence returns yeah i just said before we can we can trace i mean um we can can trace back this regime to a certain anarchistic and anti-violence move but it obviously um, by implementing or by establishing a new legal regime, violence comes back, right? And the way in which I try to, def to describe it is, has more to do with the, um, uh, defining and determining way in which, uh, the, uh, the, this legal regime refers to, um, to what it calls natural. I mean, let's say, for instance, in social welfare rights. Yeah? So we could say on the one hand, social welfare rights are there in order for, to, to empower everybody to, to realize and uh, fulfill his or her own basic interests. One could say this is the liberatory empowering aspect of subjective rights, but it does so in a way that at the same time, It establishes state bureaucracies, social welfare bureaucracies that define for us what our uh, basic interests are and how they they can be fulfilled, right? And therefore, um, the social welfare systems um, rule over us precisely by empowering us, right? This is the dialectic here, and this is uh, the the their their the, the form of domination, right? They dominate us, they rule us, they determine us precisely by giving us something, namely legitimate claims. And by saying also at, in the same, at the same time, which claims are therefore legitimate and which are, non, are not. And 
this is the way I just, I mean, I'm not answering your question. I just wanted to say, I mean, where I try to place the return of domination and violence in the, the modern regime of subjective rights and um, how this is connected with the, with maybe, maybe you're right, with a deeper even distinction that these, um, these uh, regimes of rights draw, namely between um, which kinds of life um, uh, even um, can even acknowledge as being uh, as being recognized, right, in the legal system, and which kinds of life cannot be because they are too anarchic, too uh, chaotic, too unformed in a certain sense, or too informed. Um, I, I, I must admit, I didn't really think about that question, but I think it's a very important aspect. But very interesting. I think this is the point where. The law turns out to be also a mechanism of selection of life. But exactly. Uh, answer. Thank you very much. Uh, I would like to combine two, two uh, questions from our list, one regarding Marx and one Nietzsche. And I think more important or more interesting for me would be now a little, to, a little bit focus on Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. I see, of course, the Marxist tradition of your book. You could say, well, the way Marx analyzes conceptually, ontologically, socially, capital. You focus really on the, on the or meta-theoretically on law. So I see, obviously, the, the Marxian legacy. Uh, but then you also focus on Nietzsche and his analysis of the slave revolt and the, con uh, in, uh, uh, in the, 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 the dimension that, and the analysis of the slave uh, revolution or re slave mm -hmm. revolt. Why do you focus on Nietzsche? Or what can we learn from, from Nietzsche with regard to the paradox of modern theories of right and law? Mm -hmm. um, let me begin with, with, a, with a superficial aspect of, of this answer, of the question of Nietzsche. I mean, uh, I, I, mean I think I, the first time I became aware of uh, that there is a relevance of Nietzsche's analysis in the genealogy of, of uh, What is translated morality? Genealogy of morality, uh, genealogy de moral. So in the first, in the first chapter, uh, especially, uh, the transformation of the, the, uh, uh, morality of the master towards slave morality. So there, in this context, he speaks exactly twice, two times of rights. He speaks of the rights of the master and then there speaks of the rights of the slave. And it's, I think it's so interesting that I admit, For somebody who's, I mean, focusing on the and maybe obsessed with the question of rights like I was at that time, it is interesting that the rights of the master, the right of the master is defined in a, in a strictly Hobbesian way, namely as the expression of its, his power. So the right, the, 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 the master has an unlimited right, which is not a right against somebody else, but is simply the, Uh, the fact, one could say, what he called, what he calls a right with reference to the master is just the fact of his power. Yeah. So the, the master in, uh, having a certain kind of power, a certain amount of power has exactly the, the right, um, has the right or his right, the right of the master goes exactly as far as, he, as his power goes. While the slave, um, claims a right against the power. Of the, of the master, right? right? Against the activity of the past, of the, the master. Defined, right, yeah. Excuse me? 
that's the way uh, Nietzsche defines the slave somehow. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So he, what he sees, I think, very clearly is that there is an emergence of an entire new understanding of what a right is, where right. a right is precisely not based on the power to actively perform something, but rather on the position of passivity, of the position of, of suffering, passio. Yeah? Um, so, and what I say, therefore, I have a right against somebody is, is the activity and the, uh, the, the power of the other. I have a right because I have not power. I don't have power. I suffering from the activity of the other. And therefore, my right is always the right of towards the delimitation of activity and power, right? This is the negative, the new negative meaning of rights that is given to the concept by the slave revolt. I think this is Nietzsche's analysis. And um, this I find insightful in itself, right? So, um, um, but the my my re reference to Nietzsche had, wants to even, let's say, get something else from him, namely, and this is, let's say, using Nietzsche against Nietzsche, because um, he also, he therefore also says that, um, or describes the slave revolt as a very, as a paradoxical operation, namely, this, this is the empowering of those without power. Yeah, so, and that means the new position, so the slave gains power, namely the power to delimit the power of the master. This is the new kind of power he, he the slave uh, gains. But this is an empowerment precisely of the powerlessness. Yeah, so, so man could also say passivity is now, becomes now, in a certain sense, the point of this empowerment. So it's an empowerment towards passivity, I want to say. Uh, in Nietzsche's term is to say the slave remains a slave even when he gets into power. This is what he finds so shocking. So the slave does not transform into a master by, by, by the slave revolt. The slave does not even want to become a master, but the slave wants to stay a slave in the ontological sense of that term in Nietzsche, namely as somebody who is passive, who suffers, who is not in control of him or herself, who is not active as the master. So the paradoxical operation um, of the slave revolts means that passivity in itself becomes acknowledged. Um, and this for Nietzsche is something absurd. Yeah, he says so, absurd, paradoxical, and so on. But in my uh, my question was, maybe there's, this is the moment of truth of, uh, of this revolution. Uh, that has has brought about the modern understanding of rights, a moment of truth which we have to preserve, namely that we have to think of a of an act of empowerment that is precisely the acknowledgement of of that which is the limit of power or powerlessness as such. Yeah. So the acknowledgement of powerlessness as the point of this of right. this revolution and this revolt. This is what I but in that sense, then you adapt this passivity of the slave and you somehow say, well, this passivity is, as I would say, ontologically or normatively mm. inscribed into what subject rights are about. It is, uh, yeah. well, we are subjects, but nevertheless, we, are, we have these rights, but we have these rights on a, on a level of passivity. Isn't, isn't that what you're aiming at? Yeah, exactly. So I want to say... Uh, I think I want to res uh, there. I wanted basically to resist a certain danger which I've, I, I had encountered in myself before, namely that um, 
we can easily, uh, not easily, but we can, I think one can uh, convince oneself of a criticism of the modern regime of rights by confronting it, let's say, in the in the way of the of the early Marx, but also uh, something I find in Bourdieu's conception of communism, with an idea of political empowerment. So when Marx writes on the Jewish question, he says, "How how could it happen?" I mean, he finds it's a riddle, as I say, as he says, and I quote him, that the bourgeois revolution, by empowering us politically, at the same time uh, established realms. Of, of life which were um, subtracted from the political, which were not accessible for the political. And the, his, the counterposition seems to be, seems to say we have to go till the end with the political empowerment. We have to extend political empowerment. So the realm of collective self-government to all the, those parts of society, especially economy that have to, had, has, have been uh, depoliticized in by the regime of rights. And I think this fantasy of unlimited political empowerment is at the same time a nightmare. Yeah? So, and the question I, with which basically the books, uh, book ends is how can we preserve, um, the, uh, the bourgeois, the subjective rights approach or attempt to delimit a political empowerment, also to set us free as individuals from participation in social and political processes, to leave us alone, to say it in the most simple way. How can we preserve something of this idea without establishing a regime of subjective rights, which has the moment, the, the effects of domination and violence, which we discussed already before? So that's basically the question. And I mean, not really the answer to this question, but let's say the, the name I give to this question is to talk about counter rights. Yeah, mm. and we will come to this soon. Mm. Yeah, but okay. Let me first um, dig a little deeper. I'm still wondering what the difference is between this right to passivity of the slave uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the subjective right of the bourgeois, because. For example, Marxist philosophers like Sonja Buckel, for example, um, have, uh, have argued that um, this right to passivity could be a hidden form of a bourgeois right because it is in the interest of the bourgeois. And what bothers me also is, just a little bit, is um, that when you speak about the claim of the slave to... Um, That, that, the, that the slave can claim um, in, in front of the master his right to passivity. Then you have to presuppose, in a way, that the slave has a position to, uh, to do this. So he has, he, he, uh, I, what, how should I put it? Um, you have to, presuppose that this slave who is still outside the law has a legal status, a legal position to make this claim before the master. But maybe it is, uh, it is a view which is um, a, a little bit too political or too, um, too re revolutionary. I'm not sure. Could, could you maybe say something on that? Yeah. 
Um, let me start with the second point, which because it's still to the Nietzsche question, and then the other point is, um, I mean, about the distinction, if there is a, a distinction at all between subjective rights and what I call counter rights. Um, and this is the even more difficult question. So the first, um, I obviously, I mean, you're obviously right. I mean, there is no, no, um, Status. There is no legal status for the slave to claim anything. Yeah? So this, this slave is exactly um, is exactly that. Um, what what to say? That that status which is not a status, which does not have a status, right? And according to Aristotle, which cannot even does not even know what claiming means. Yeah? So. The slave can just suffer and articulate its suffering, but it cannot claim anything. It's, as you know, Aristotle's definition of the slave, an inability to claim, an inability to judge. Um, so I think, uh, the, the, I think the, what this slave revolt does is to, to produce a status. Yeah. So there is no status before, but the slave produces a status by, its revolt. So, and this is something that Nietzsche never denied. So, there's, as you know, I mean, he's the slave revolt is for him for him something um, absurd and paradoxical, but he also admires it. Yeah. So he says about the Jews who who are for him the the subject of the slave revolt that the, what they do is they they really perform an act of empowerment, and this performing this act of empowerment by, and this is a creative act, which is maybe even more important for, for Nietzsche. It creates something which did not exist before, namely the position uh, for the slave of claiming something. And then uh, Nietzsche asks, why the hell did they not go to the end? And uh, where uh, this, uh, this self, this creative self-empowering would have meant to become a master themselves. Yeah? So where mastery means um, being a kind of self or subject, which um, is an instance of power and where, uh, and, the, and the master is that subject, which is nothing but the expression of its power. Everything the subject does is the mere expression of its power. So there is no reflective delimitation and so on at work. Or even where the reflective limitation is at work, it's again an act of power, right? Um, so why did the slave not become masters? Uh, because they really performed this act of empowerment. And they, in that sense, I think Marx's reflection in the Jewish question and Nietzsche's reflection in the genealogy are very similar. They both describe the act of an empowering. Marx with reference to the bourgeois revolution, Nietzsche to the slave revolt, but the structure is the same, as I tried to say before, an act of empowerment, which paradoxically tries to uh, empower the position of weakness. Yeah, mm. good, good yeah. point. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a good expression. I think this is, this is the paradoxical uh, moment here, or what Marx calls the riddle. And, um, and I think what I, I want to suggest that we should take over this 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 analysis and say this this that this at the same time describes the moment of birth of the conception bourgeois conception of subjective rights, which then goes 
wrong and the moment of truth which we have to preserve right so therefore i think it's a genealogical critique i tried to to make here i go back to the moment of the ursprung to the moment of uh, emergence of this new regime and try to identify to find the moment of truth which we should try to preserve um, and what in a certain sense um, is uh, maybe the most abstract way of formulating what goes wrong in the bourgeois articulation of weakness is that this position of weakness, of not empowerment, um, is then naturalized in the negative sense which we discussed before, right? Because the position of weakness is then defined as the position where we are positively, positivistically described by the bourgeois regime um, of, of rights as being defined by certain natural interests and natural forms of freedom. Yeah, so arbitrary. So, and this, one could say this positivistic, this positivization, if we can say so, of, of weakness. That is, I think, in my view, the mistake, yeah, if you speak like this, uh, in, of the bourgeois revolution. But the mistake is not the first move, empowering weakness, but it's the second move, defining weakness in a positivistic way. Mm -hmm. I see, I see. Very interesting, yeah. You already mentioned your notion of counter-rights in, in the last, in the fourth and last part of your book, you are laying the ground for a new law, a new concept of law um, by presenting a theory of so-called counter-rights, Gegenrechte, And these counter-rights seem to be about the relationship between political and also aesthetic or epistemological activity and passivity. We already spoke about that. Could you maybe sketch a little bit um, what are counter-rights? What are they about? And what is the fundamental distinction of these counter-rights um, in front of the bourgeois rights? Because Simon and I, we are giving a class on your uh, on your book, and we are really having a, a, a great time with the yeah. students. But of course, then the students, uh, after having uh, worked through your meta theoretical analysis, of course, they were very keen to know what is your some of your solution. Yeah. We, we yeah, know yeah. Solutions I, I, and philosophy are limited, but nevertheless, it would be get it would be great if you could flesh out a little bit this idea mm -hmm. of rights yeah indeed yeah this is um it's a very good point and uh, i would i mean would be happy if i could really uh, develop this concept in a in a convincing way but i think i i'm still not really able to i, I don't really understand myself here entirely but i can i can tell you what i want to say with this i mean what the perspective is and what the abstract let's say on a more schematic way what the construction is i mean um given what we just said um what i just said before about my um let's say critical adaptation of of nietzsche and uh, nietzsche's analysis of the slave revolt i mean then the question obviously is if if um let's say the positivistic determination of the position of weakness which i tried to describe before is the mistake of subjective rights is there another way of articulating the right of passivity the right of weakness yeah of course that's the question and counter rights is meant to to indicate let's say 
this other way of articulating uh, this this right of um, of weakness. And the the main distinction, I mean, the the, the schema I use here is. Um, let's say, uh, Adorno's opposition between positivistic thinking and dialectical thinking. Yeah. So and the distinction is very simple. I mean, both are about difference, one could say, namely, for instance, uh, the difference we, which we discussed all the time between the normative and the natural. And in positivism, the distinction or the difference is articulated in such a way that the other, the side of the other, is defined as pre-given, as givenness, yeah? the myth of the given, yeah? as the myth of the given of interest, the myth of the given of arbitrary choice, as if the natural were given, yeah? pre-given to us, and therefore um, the abstract other, the abstract opposition to our capacities to articulate, to transform, to think and so on, yeah. So to our normative capacities, while in a dialectical form of thinking, which Ma, which Adorno thought is just a different way for speaking about what is true about materialism, um, the these moments of this the otherness is thought as a moment, as he says with Hegel. Yeah. So you cannot determine um, in an abstract way what the other of thinking or the other of the normative is. But uh, there is a dialectical interplay, which means basically a relation of contradiction, but which is a process um, in which both terms are defined in the same move, right? Define themselves in the same move. So in that sense, there cannot be a sphere, um, let's say, in which, uh, which is opposed to, to the legal order, in which is preserved by by subjective rights, for instance, the economic sphere, which is determined by property and contract rights, and this which is which so the, these rights are determined in a specific way and constitute a social sphere, which is um, this which is not accessible by political uh, government, right? So in that sense, uh, the Counter rights are meant to identify or to to, to address uh, the dimension of passivity of the dimension of the non-political of non-self-government in such a way that they are only moments in a process um, of uh, of communal self-government. Let, let me try to give an example, very simple example. Um, take a seminar. Yeah, so this the seminar discussion, right? And in a sense, one would say, um, uh, we, we let's say we we were thinking about giving us a normative order to say speaks in this way of how to lead our seminar discussion, right? And then we would say something like, um, we would divide, so we would we would define a, a common idea of. Of goodness, we would say, for instance, a seminar discussion is not about um, uh, enabling, uh, giving people individual competences which they then later can sell on the market, but rather of developing knowledges, capacities, and so on, which contribute to a common um, project of finding something out, right, uh, about something, whatever it might be about law, for instance, yeah. Um, uh, so in that sense, we have a, a shared idea of goodness. We have a certain shared idea in the end of our discussion 
we would say shared idea of the different roles people play in this in our debates for instance the professor the teacher has a different role than the students yeah so this the duty of the professor in a certain sense is different from the obligation of the students and I mean, let's assume we we agree on these distributions of roles and so on um and then we would say, okay, everything that is said in such a discussion has to understand itself as contributing to the common goodness. Yeah? And I would say that is true, but we also need moments in which we say something of which we don't even know whether it contributes or not. Yeah, which is maybe just to others nonsensical. Uh, playful maybe somebody we have a serious discussion about violence and law and somebody quotes a poem in between and nobody knows what what it means and so on uh, and but so an anarchistic intervention let's say yeah an anarchistic in the sense uh, the literal sense we do not know yeah uh, at that point whether it makes sense or not whether, whether it's ridiculous whether it it's it's even driven by an interest in knowledge or whether it's just playing around with words and so on. But without those moments, yeah, so moments now in the literal sense, temporal sense, so without those moments, our common uh, project would fail, necessarily fail. Yeah. So that we just to finish just one sentence. So we need we have to grant each other moments, spaces and times of non-productivity of, of of not being uh, interested in this moment in contributing something meaningful yeah so in a certain sense one could say but i stop with this they say it's an aesthetic mo mode I see. For, of the soul reflection yeah that's that's interesting that you that you that you express this so so explicitly uh, because when i first read gegenrechte my my first impression was that you somehow jump on the train of but you who some who tries to what do you say to, to to reinvigorate a concept of violence and political violence and we have these modern dialectical materialists also Zizek who try to somehow develop new theories of of violence and my impression was when I first read the concept Gegenrechte that's also what you are trying to to aim at but what you just said is uh, also also um, is doesn't on the underline my first impression. Hmm. No, I mean, um, I think maybe we can, I don't know if you have time, but we can come back to the question of violence, which is very complicated here. But in a sense, um, uh, because that is also was also implied, I think, in the question before, I think that this is in a certain sense, um, not so far, let's say, from the Leninist in inspirations, uh, on which Badiou and Shizek draw, because I find, um, I found, uh, I mean, when I, I had written State and Revolution when I was 17, of course, and you don't understand anything, but I reread it only much, much later again. Um, and what I found most fascinating in State and Revolution is the programmatic claim by, by Lenin to say, on the one hand, to fiercely criticize anarchism yeah, as being um, not only strategically naive, because anarchism does not seem to understand that we need means of violence in order to, to fight um, 
against um, uh, the um, or to, to to fight in a political struggle which is based on class divisions, right? Which never will be a nice kind of let's say argumentative discourse, right? Um, but it's also uh, not only, I mean, in that sense, strategically naive anarchism, but it does not really have an understanding of of what politics is, where politics means um, uh, not just, I mean, means really a, an organized process of self-government, articulating this common idea of goodness, giving it a specific structure and form. So, so that politics is always, I would say, already police in, in Rancière's sense, but in a good sense, where police means or has the state form, right? So in that sense, I'm, I'm really Hegelian. I think Lenin is also Hegelian. The state is the constitutive organizational form of any meaningful uh, politics. So he's a defense, he's in defense of the state, but at the same time, he's very aware in that book, um, not so much, uh, unfortunately, after the, the revolution, um, very aware of the necessity and the, the, the legitimacy of an anarchistic delimitation of state violence. This delimitation, I would translate this, um, of any form of normative grasp, right? So the grasp of normativity on our lives has to be delimited at the same time. And this is what I want to say by counter rights, we need rights against um, the obligation uh, and even the responsibility towards the common good. So, as on the one hand, I want I, I defend this idea, of course, of of ethical life and common good, but I also want to say, and this is, I think, something we can gain also from from aesthetic reflections. There is no goodness without a delimitation of goodness. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we are a little bit short of time. Maybe a last concluding question. Um, you say in several works, also after Critique of Rights, that liberalism is kind of the normative order of freedom, which presupposes freedom. But uh, at the same time, liberalism has no idea um, how the process which leads to freedom can be understood. So liberalism is about freedom, but not about liberation. And I know that you are working on liberation. And uh, for example, you wrote a book about Hegel and liberation. Could you say a little, about, uh, uh, a little bit more about this and what, what could be a, an idea of of the violence of liberation, but also of the concept of liberation. Yeah, this is the, the project on which I'm working right now. And therefore, I, I ended the book on critique of rights with the term liberation. I don't know. I don't even remember if it was grammatically possible to have this as the last word in the in the English translation. But at least in the German translation, Befreiung, liberation was the mm -hmm. last word. Yeah. Um, um, Yeah, I think the basic argument is, is as you just said, I mean, I want, to, I, 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 on the one hand, I, I try to develop my critique of liberalism further or just or take it up by saying uh, liberalism has a positivistic misunderstanding of the givenness of liberty or freedom as freedom were something naturally given. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, the, the experience, uh, 
I mean, empirical and philosophical experience tells us that this is precisely not the case. Um, or one could rather say that the kind of freedom that is just given is the wrong kind of freedom. It's the freedom simply of, of choice, of arbitrary choice. Um, and the preservation of arbitrary choice is the basic, as I tried to say, and we discussed before, of specific forms of social domination, especially capitalist exploitation. So in that sense, the, the idea, the liberal basic idea that we can start from the givenness of, of freedom, um, misrepresents freedom and also, I think, leaves liberalism um, vulnerable or, let's say, exposed without any means to do something against it, um, uh, vulnerable to towards uh, cultural, economic, social developments that uh, precisely are about the destruction of freedom. I mean, I mean, any kind of authoritarian cultural movement um, that uh, operates in the limits of liberal rights uh, dissolves, in a, in a certain sense, the, precisely the givenness of freedom on which liberalism rests. Yeah? So this is what, in, what, in this sense, I want to say there is uh, liberalism is always in crisis. Yeah? So because it cannot do anything about its own foundations, it has to because it naturalizes its own foundations. It also is helpless when it comes when it is facing uh, authoritarian movements that destroy those uh, uh, those those bases, the basis of of of, uh, of liberal uh, liberalism, right? The givenness of freedoms. Since I don't know if this is clear, so since liberalism treats freedom as simply given, it cannot do anything about it. Yeah. So, um, so for instance, there cannot be an education to. To, to freedom because that education in its set own forms would be illiberal yeah? because it would intrude it was uh, intrude in our private sphere which is precisely what liberalism is all about um, so in that sense my my uh, project about uh, uh, liberation is in certain sense a continuation of this critique of liberalism and uh, I mean that would be a very long story, but I think a ba what what uh, the problem with, with uh, which we have to deal when we talk about lib uh, liberation is that liberation liberation comes from the other. Yeah, so I cannot liberate myself. Um, so that is impossible um, because if I mean. It's simple, yeah. If I were able to liberate myself, uh, liberate myself, I already had the ability of freedom, and therefore I would not be have to liberate myself. Um, so, if liberation is really about the coming about of freedom, not just, I mean, like for instance, in the slave revolt, I mean, when the slaves of Haiti liberated themselves, they already were free, yeah? so had the capacity to freedom, and they. What they were asking for is recognition of this capacity as something already existing. But if we think of liberation in, a, in the fundamental, in an ontological sense, when we say subjects, freedom are the effect of liberation, then liberation cannot be our own making. Uh, but if we say, on the other hand, that liberation comes from the other, of course, we are on the other side of the paradox. Yeah? If liberation comes from the other, does this mean that liberation, freedom is given to me? Freedom can also not be given to me, but then, because then it would be simply something 
that are all to the other and I would free, be free at least in relation to the other of, uh, to which to whom I owe my freedom. That is the paradox one could say of liberation. And um, so the question I'm just uh, thinking about, I'm in the middle of writing a chapter on that, uh, is a reflection on the story of Exodus, which I think helps us understand who the other and how the other is whose intervention can actually liberate us. Yeah, so what does the Exodus story, this simply the question, I mean, complicated question, is um, how does the Exodus understand God in order for us to be able to understand that God can liberate us? Well, it's, it sounds very interesting because I think, let's say, these radical, probably more radical materialists, they would, they would ask for a need of a master, uh, but you are referring to a need of another. Uh, a need is, of a God. I yeah, or a need of a God, yeah, which is really, of course... Of the other, yeah. It makes a difference. That's interesting. <laughs> it sounds really very interesting and very insightful. And uh, and Simon and I, we are really looking forward also to reading, uh, hopefully soon, uh, your, your new work. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, we have uh, to come to a close at the moment. Uh, so Simon and I, we just want to thank you again for also, taking the time and be so elo eloquent uh, about your theory. Uh, and it was really a, a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, let me thank you, both of you, for, for the really helpful questions, because uh, the, the form of the question, the content of the questions is decisive for being able to start to think again about these uh, problems. And it was a very good opportunity for me to recall the arguments of the book. So thank you. Wonderful. Yeah, thanks. It okay. was a great pleasure for me as well. Thank you. Okay, have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.